Good morning. So I'm really excited for you get to hear um, a sermon by this young man, John Wiley Hargrove. So John is one of our AFC guys, but he is not a newcomer to teaching or preaching. So before we get to that part, John grew up in Naples, Texas, graduated from Paul Pewitt, blazing blue Brahmas. I always thought it was Brahmas, but he has corrected me multiple times. Um, it comes down here as a student. He is a senior here. He's been a big leader, a big part of the AFC. But his experience really is from teaching at different places, but also he's been teaching at the Hearn, preaching at the Hearn Church of Christ for quite a while on Sunday mornings. So we're taking advantage of him being here with us this morning. I'm excited that you get to hear from this young man. We're going to pray for him, and then we're going to let him go. I sent him a text yesterday that said, preach the word. He said, I'm a nervous wreck, ha ha. So, <laughs> so y'all just, you know, give him good attention, encourage him. He's going to be a great man of God's word preaching for a long time to come. We don't know exactly what he's going to land um, as far as career or job. It could be ministry, but whatever it is, it's going to be ministering. So if you'll pray with me, please. So, Father, we are thankful for John. We're thankful for a humble heart and a willing heart, a willing heart to preach your word and to be in your word. We pray for him this morning for peace and calm and the Holy Spirit's present and you presence in using him. We're thankful for his willing to be used. May our ears be eager to hear the words from um, your scripture. And may we live for you. We thank you, Father, for the knowledge and the fact that we are already chosen. We are already loved. And you are enough. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you, Brian. I hate introducing myself, so you did me a huge, huge favor. uh, Because that is just annoying. Like I said... Expert Christ, senior at Texas A&M, uh, and by now, as I speak just these first two sentences, you're probably noticing this very rural, thick, northeast Texan accent. Um, some people love it. Some people hate it. I think it's annoying. You may too, but I hope you uh, enjoy today's le- uh, lesson. And my reason uh, for preaching today, this way you include this in your prayers, is that Dean has the flu, and as of last night at about 8 p.m., he had a 101-degree fever. So if you don't mind praying for him, he told me to tell y'all that he misses y'all very much and that he looks forward to being back next week on January the 7th. He called me Friday night to preach at about 8 p.m. I said, sure, but if I'm being honest with you, my heart sank, my stomach sank. And I said, I have 36 hours to come up with something to preach in front of a big congregation, a bigger crowd than I've ever preached in front of before. And I liken it to this. And we have a little experience with it this year. It's kind of like the starting quarterback. Or maybe it's the second string quarterback, the third string quarterback, and as of Wednesday, the fourth string quarterback gets thrown into the game like mid-fourth quarter, and that is me today. So bear with me. I think it's cool I get to close out the year with this sermon. Uh, But a good preacher friend of mine always told me to have a sermon in my back pocket. Shout out to Steve. Some may have heard me preach this lesson before, but I promise you it's not because it's just a back pocket sermon. Um, It's because it's personal. It's a personal sermon. And I couldn't think of more applicable sermon for myself, for you, or for the rest of the world on December 31st, heading into January 1st, 2024. 
It's a new year of life. Everything rewinds. The clock rolls back, and the calendar starts over. But before that happens, I want you to learn something. And what I want you to learn is about how to truly live. What is the way to the abundant life? In John 10, in verse 10, the Lord Jesus Christ says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The Greek word for life is this word, zoe. Zoe. The biblical definition and the meaning of the word means this. Of the absolute fullness of life both essential and ethical, which belongs to God. A life that is real and that is genuine, that is active and vigorous, that is devoted to God, that is blessed. Even in this world, it is blessed. And for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, it is consummated in the resurrection forever. And what I think is interesting is we are not the only ones who are in search for life. This entire world is in search for life in something. It is your basic instinct as a creature, as a human created in the image of the invisible God, the Imago Dei, to search for life in something, to chase after life in something. And for thousands of years, mankind has done this. And for thousands of years, mankind has dramatically failed through philosophy, through political system, through relationships, and through religion. I want to use a quote from my, one of my favorite movies uh, from William Wallace and Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Uh, yeah, I know a lot of preachers do this, but I promise you I'm not going to show some video or something that'd be out- outrageous. But there is a quote that I find strangely biblical in the movie that has nothing to do with the Bible. But William Wallace says this in Braveheart. He says, every man dies, but not every man really lives. And I want to ask, do you know how not to fail in that task? Do you know how to truly live? Do you know how not to waste your life? I want to tell you, if you will read and you will do what this book, and you will apply it to your life, you do what it says, You will not fail in that great task. Do you want abundance? Do you want satisfaction? Do you want contentment? Do you want fullness? Do you want to look back in 60 years and on your deathbed be able to say that I live to the max? And when you pass from this life into the next, do you want to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant? Like I said, devote yourself to the message that is given to you in the spoken revelation of God. We're going to start by reading in Psalm chapter 1. And like Dean does, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's word and give it its due honor. Psalm chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, I don't have it on the screen. The word of God says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind dries away. And so therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God. Let's pray and you may be seated. So our Father who is in heaven, all glory and honor to you. Thank you for these ancient words that have been long preserved for our walk in this world, that you have handed down by the preservation of the saints who have come before us. We thank you for your word. It is our foundation for living, and it contains the only message that can save us. And as Dean prays every Sunday, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. 
Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This book, I say this at Hearn almost every Sunday. This book right here is a great big story. And not a fantasy story. It's a great big truthful narrative. And contained within in this first psalm, the psalms in general, it is a book full of poetic promises and teaching principles and plumb lines. And what I mean by plumb lines is this is a biblical tool. It's a tool we actually still use today. What it is, is it helps to measure out and see if a wall is straight going from up to down to measure it, to see if it is straight, to see if it is in right order. And it's often used as a metaphor in the Word of God to describe the Word of God itself. And I personally use, uh, just so little preface, I personally use plumb lines in my sermon to help me and to help you to guide my message, to establish points and to keep focus and help you to practically follow. So in other words, I'm your standard three-point preacher. That's me. But it's, it's too easy to pass up. I got to do it that way. And today's plumb line is three questions that I want to ask to guide us and to direct us into the Word of God in order to derive the meaning, the essence, and the application of God's Word. And the first question is this, is what is the way of the ungodly? The second question is what is the way of the godly? And number three, what is the way to the way of the ungodly? The meaning of way means a course of life. It means a direction. It means a pathway that you walk through this great journey of life. And Psalm chapter 1 itself is the basic yet fundamental framework, the basic plumb line for living out the abundant life. So what is the way of the ungodly? The first word of the very first poem in the book of Psalms is blessed. It says, blessed, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. It's making an immediate contrast between two separate kinds of people. There are two peoples in this world, the psalm says, the ungodly and the godly, the righteous and the unrighteous. And the first word blessed is used to make that total contrast. And in the Hebrew, this word blessed, what it means is it is a right way. It's something that's, that's in good order, that's in, that is satisfied, a life that is content, a life that is full and good and whole. And Psalms, the Psalms, the psalmist is outright saying that blessed is the life of the man who does not what? Walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners takes, or sits in the seats of scoffers. The psalm is portraying this elaborate progression from good to bad to evil to worse, from walking to standing to sitting. I hope you see that. And I'll use a little, little illustration to help you understand how you can be pulled into something deeply uh, and, and an increased devotion and engagement. My illustration is this. CeCe's Pizza. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Some of you have every bit of an idea of what I'm talking about. Here's what I mean by CeCe's Pizza. Church ends. It's lunchtime. We're not going to Rosa's. This is a true story, by the way. Me and my roommates got into the truck, and we were driving on Texas Avenue looking for somewhere to eat. And the next thing you know, my buddy in the back seat comes up with this elaborate idea. He says, let's go to CeCe's. Let's go to CeCe's. What we're doing right there is we're walking in step. We're heading into a direction that we should not be going in. The next thing you know, you find yourself parked in the parking lot of CeCe's, standing in the way of CeCe's. What happens next? You start entertaining the idea. And the next thing you know, you find yourself sitting in the seats of CeCe's. And what are you doing? You're stalking yourself full of pizza, all right? And it's all downhill, all downhill from there. And, and just like sin... Just like sin, get this, just like sin, you eat as much as you can, 
and you feel terribly about yourself afterwards. <laughs> Been there and done that. Some of you are getting real self-conscious right now because you're like, hey, we're going to CC's afterwards, you said. The preacher said not to. All right? But that is precisely what the deceitfulness of sin portrayed here looks like. A couple pepperoni slices turns into 20. All right? But more seriously, the deceitfulness of sin convinces you that something is okay, that something is not that bad, something is not so dangerous, and it convinces you that you are strong, that you can't be caught. And it begins with the process of a word or a deed, something that goes on your mind that convinces you that that is the way that you should go. And it's not light, it's not harmless, it's not okay. Sin presents itself, and then it entertains you, and then it ensnares you. And it often does so using the people who surround you. But I'm not harping on that part of the passage today. What I'm trying to harp on is that this process happens bit by bit. This is a little extreme. But no one starts with child porn. No one starts with cocaine. No one starts with being a cult leader. No one starts as a serial killer. Every single thing, every single sin, every single lifestyle sin starts with a taste and a touch and a feel and a listen. And you can go from vulnerability to entertainment, and then from entertainment to experiment, and then, inter and then experiment to ensnarement. Before long, you know it. It overwhelms and it overtakes and it kills you and it turns you into chaff that the wind blows away. It makes you into a brittle shell of a human being that the smallest storm in life will knock over or that the simplest sin will kill. That's what it does. That's what it does. And I want to tell you that it's counterfeit and that it's cheap and no sin is worth it because it turns you into that brittle shell of a human being. The way of the ungodly is a chasing for life and things that only will ever give you death, and that's what sin is. You obviously know what sin is. It's breaking God's law. It's trespassing against the law of God. It's rebellion against the law of God. But the essence of the trespass and the sin against God is that you are breaking God's designed path for your life. The rebellion against the original created order of perfect harmony between God and man. It is trespass against the very heart, nature, and character of God himself. It's a progression, and it draws you deeper and deeper into it. And it leads you off this path that you're supposed to be on, off the path farther into the desert, into a dry and arid place that is freezing at night, that is scorching in the day, where there is no oasis to feed you. I'll give you some practical observations. I don't want to just talk about sin. I want to talk about real-life sin in our lives that we have to address and that we have to take care of if we want to get onto the way of the godly. And I'm not going to use these super crazy illustrious sins that we often struggle with or we see the rest of the world struggle with you're regular people you're here on a Sunday morning so I'm going to use regular normal things that you wouldn't think about that can ensnare you and that can lead you on the path of the ungodly really simple things things that are actually naturally good regular things for regular, regular people and the core observation I make is this thing goes from walking to standing and sitting that leads to control. And like I said, it doesn't have to be inherently evil. In fact, the most deceitful compromises and the most hidden progressions and the most wayward paths are most often hidden in instinctually good things, good that is twisted into evil. And so walking in step with the wicked and standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of scoffers does not present itself as downright wicked. It doesn't look sinful. It doesn't look scoffing. It manifests itself in the most normal ways. And here's a few basic areas of our lives. How about time? Time. You're thinking, what is he talking about? Time. Sin. Time is sin. 
Hear me out. I'll use myself as an example. You may find a little humor in this. I'm a college student, and most of you will agree that I have more time in my life right now than I will ever have again. Amen, adults? Is that true? Probably true. But what I see among my generation and among me and myself and what I see among the God's people overall is that we don't redeem our time. We won't give 30 minutes. We won't give an hour to God in the day. And where does it lead us? Into the way of the ungodly. We will give school and jobs and sleeping in and sports and girlfriends our first fruits. That's not right. What about our careers? Or anything in between? How about money or education? Wonderful blessings that become idolatrous when they decide to take the place of the one who blessed us with those things. We live lives for created things rather than for the creator. And so many people's lives, I've seen it. And there are people in the church today, even in this room, whose lives have been dictated by a career or by an education, by a certain college degree, and I've seen it ruin lives. That's the way of the ungodly. What about our day-to-days, our day-to-day lives? Relationships, family, friends. You can make people an idol. Did you know that? That can lead you off the path probably more than anything. It becomes your first love, and you decide to center your life around those who influence you and center your life around those you are influenced by. And you get crafted into their image instead of the image of the invisible God. And it's just as much as the way of the ungodly as anything else. What about our talk? Because we're going to end this sermon. We're going to end this worship service today. What are we going to talk about afterwards? Personally, I hear and I participate in conversations that never amount to anything. And these aren't bad. They never amount to anything more than yesterday's Cowboys win or this whole Taylor Swift or Travis Kelsey incident or all the work drama that goes on in our lives. But there is a lack of deep spiritual connectedness in our lives. Why are we not talking about theology? That word scares you. It shouldn't scare you. Why aren't we talking about the grace of God? Why aren't we talking about the blessings that God has put into our lives? Talking about how God has blessed our children. How he's blessed our families. How he's blessed our careers. The things that the apostles actually intended for us to fellowship around. We often do not even fellowship around those things. Anything else? Any other metaphor you want to use? Any other CeCe's Pizza metaphor you want to use? Sitting with scoffers, writing this line between good and evil, and you're testing the waters of right and wrong. And one thing I see Christians do all the time, and I'm guilty of it too, is we like to ride that line, and we like to tow the water. And we get a little giddy, and we get this little giggle when we kind of play with sin just a little bit because you're like, well, I can go this way. I won't go over. That's a sin in and of itself, is trying to get near and see how far you can go without actually sinning. That is a sin. And I've seen freshmen, there's no college students here, but, or a few, But I've seen freshmen, and I've mentioned this before, I've seen freshmen who come in here ripe for growth, who get comfortable, who get lukewarm, and they get deceived, or they get, or worse, they get distracted. And they test those waters, and by senior year, they are graduating wonderfully with that Aggie ring, with that career, with that wife. But they are leaving spiritually dead and dry people. It's the same way in the church. We can come in, we can get comfortable in the church, and we leave this earth as spiritually dry and dead people, and we never amount to anything. We're just brittle shells of people who sit here in service on Sunday, and it never carries itself out of the assembly. Believe it or not, that's the way of the ungodly. Anything else that's not the way of the godly leads back into Egypt or deeper into the desert. And like I said, it will never give you abundance. It will never give you satisfaction. It will never give you contentment. If you're searching for lives and things that are apart from God, it will never actually give you the life. That's my point. Okay, pass this in. (laughs) No fire and brimstone anymore.
What is the way of the godly? Our second plumb line question. Read the psalm. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on that law day and night. Do you want to find the secret to satisfaction? Do you want to find the secret to abundance? And do you want to find the secret to joy and life and to this right living that God speaks so much of in his word? The prosperous, fulfilling life that God talks about is found in this book. And the scripture says, meditate on this book of the law day and night. And you could take that literally. That could be your 6 a.m. when you wake up quiet time. That could be 10 p.m. before you go to bed or both. Or you can take that metaphorically and you'll come to the same exact conclusion. The conclusion is this. The conclusion is that the man or the woman of God has a consistent, regimented, regular schedule. And I don't even want to use schedule, but they are committed day by day to the word of God. That may not necessarily mean reading the word of God every day, but it means it's committed to the things and the purposes of God. I'll get into that later. And I want to uh, go ahead and mention too, when it says God's law, it's more than the Torah. It's not just talking about the Ten Commandments. It's talking about something much deeper. It's talking about the entire spoken revelation of God that he has given us in the 66 books of the Bible. That he's revealed to us himself, that reveals us everything we need to know about God. By divine inspiration, holy protection, the word of God has come to us 2,000 years later. And so, of course, it naturally does mean reading this book that you have in your hands. But it's more than reading. It means meditating and devouring it. It's a given. If you have no connection to God's spoken revelation, how could you have any kind of connection to God himself? How could you? And I want to be clear about this. The word of God is not just rules and regulations and religion. It's far from that. And it's much more than just letters and pages. If that's your idea of the Bible, if that's your idea of Christianity, you'll never know God if that's all you think this book is. It is so much more, and Christianity is always infinitely more deep than what you already think it is. The blessed way that is found in the message and the promise and in the purpose and the mission and the joy of all of it is found in the journeying through the message of God's word. I'll give you some practical things to get in your heart. You need to pray and you need to think about the Word of God. You need to listen and you need to write and you need to talk about the Word of God. Personal thing I do in my life. Bible before breakfast. Is that easy enough to remember? Bible before breakfast. No read, no feed. I didn't make that up, by the way. No read, no feed. Pretty simple, pretty easy to follow. 30 minutes before breakfast. Go ahead and do it. I want to tell you that if you will give God the first hour of your day, you'll watch him Make the next 23 hours of your day come to life. And the promise of that is this, is that that discipline will develop into delight. I promise you it's worked in my life. And I'll preach on it all day long, how the word of God has changed my heart. It's transformed me. It's transformed who I am since I started doing it freshman year. And I mentioned earlier that is the regular things that often entrap us as these regular church goers. And that the way of the ungodly is paved by compromise, bit by bit. I want to tell you that the paving stones for the way of the godly is commitment over contribution. We don't merely contribute ourselves to the word of God and to the things of God, but we commit ourselves to the things and to the word of God. We commit ourselves to the purpose and to the precepts and to the people and to the person of God. Because Christianity is not a conditional religion. It demands everything. And so what does the way of the godly look like? I'll use the same regular examples I used earlier. So I'll show you how those good things can stay good. This is how. Rather than being given over to a career or to a money 
or to an education at Texas A&M University. I, with the help of the Holy Spirit, am going to meditate upon how to tailor and to steward my career and the blessings that have given me, steward them to the glory of God and to the love of God and to the love of people in my life. How am I going to make my job worthwhile for the kingdom, regardless of what I do? How does it contribute to society? Which, by the way, God wants ordered, structured society. How does it contribute to society? As a lobbyist, at the legislator, as a physical therapist, as a banking executive, as a business consultant, or as a political science professor, or as a waitress or a youth minister or a high school student? How do I tailor those things to the word of God? The way of the godly. Instead of being consumed by relationships and friends and even family, I devote myself and I meditate on how I can mutually center those things, those relationships around my relationship with Jesus Christ, first and foremost. First with family, second with friends, and third to the rest of the world that surrounds you in the marketplace of life. And what is the way of the godly? I go back to the talk we were talking about, the conversations that we have after church. What does this look like? We're not going to end all those secular conversations, okay? I'm still going to talk to Dean about the Dallas Cowboys win last night and about how the guy didn't come in and report to the referee and how it was probably rigged, but my Cowboys still won. I'm going to talk about that. Do you understand? That's enjoyable. It's okay for there to be fellowship about that. But it is not going to trump, and it is not going to replace, and it is not going to hold priority about the conversations I have about God and about the blessings in my life and how I connect with people on a spiritual level. It won't trump it. We don't take wicked counsel. We don't entertain ourselves with sinful things. We don't toe the line that sometimes, some locations, some people, some activities are not worthy of us, and they are not worthy of us divesting our holiness for. Proverbs 4.23 says, To guard your heart above all things. God says that for your good. Guard your heart. Even from the regular things in life that can ensnare and entertain and entrap you. I tell the college students this too. Because I think it's also perfectly applicable to the church as a whole. When we come in as freshmen and when we leave as seniors or senior plus or senior plus plus. Or when we come into the church as young professionals or whatever it is. And when we enter the new year that we're about to go into, can we ensure that we are uncomfortable with lukewarmness? Can we ensure that we are dissatisfied with unsatisfactory spirituality? Dissatisfied with unsatisfactory spirituality. We want to come here and in our four years or our 40 years, leave as the most fruit-filled, purpose-driven, ready-to-conquer-the-world-for-our-God people that there exist in the planet to show others the same ancient path that we have been walking on. And so what is the counter-offer to being chaff? What's the counter-offer of condemnation? What is the counter-offer of the ungodly way that in verse 6 says that we'll perish? It is the way of the godly. It is the way of the righteous. And where does it lead? Most important question, where does the way of the godly lead? What does the person become on the way of the godly? We can read in verse 2 and 3, it says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law both day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. What you do and where the road leads first starts with how you help pave the way for others. The whole image of the way and the path of God is based upon the exodus. 
And the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, walking down these paths, walking around these narrow, high and low, rocky terrain surfaces that served as their way to Israel. And what you would want to do is you would want to pick up the stones that could trip you, throw them away that no one else would have to trip like you did. That's what it looks like. And even in those desert roads, they looked for oasis. And what the Bible says is that you will become the oasis in the middle of the desert when you walk on this way. You will become as a tree of life. You will become fruitful and life-giving. A tree, a fruitful tree, a tree that gives life. Where have we seen this? How about in Eden in the beginning? I think this is so cool because I think the psalmist is doing just this. He's trying to paint us a picture. And he's trying to make us look forward to something as well. Eden, in the beginning, the tree of life was the source of all life for Adam and Eve. Or in John 15, where Jesus Christ says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This big tree. Or in Revelation, when Eden is restored, when it is enveloped by the tree of life that covers, that canopies this great river which feeds it. And it says that there were leaves growing on that tree. And those leaves are the people of God growing from a tree that is for the healing of the rest of the world, for the rest of the nations. And you are grafted into that tree right now that produces this abundant fruit that goes on to reconcile the entire creation to the creator himself. You are used to conquer the desert and the oasis. You're used to conquer the dark with the light. And you are used to conquer death with life. That's where the way of righteousness leads us, into this true abundant life, into a life that satisfies, into a life that is content that is filled, that changes everything, and that changes everybody else around you. That's where the Word of God will lead you into this transformational process that brings you from death to life, from a, from a brittle shell of a human being into someone being crapped into the image of Jesus Christ. And I've seen this work out in my life, in the lives of others, into the lives of those I work with at AM. I've seen it work into the young men who have been placed into my life, who have become his brothers. I've seen it in the older men who have been put into my life, which this church does well, who have become my most trusted counselors. And I've seen it in the lives of so many others whose, whose walk is before me, whose path goes in front of me that I can follow. And I've yet to find anything else more rewarding than this path, than this way. Nothing in the world can give you what Christianity gives. Nothing in the world can give you what a relationship with Jesus Christ and the way of the righteous can give you. Everything else is cheap. Everything else is counterfeit. You know what David said about the word of God and the path of God and about knowing God? He said this in Psalm 19. He says, they are more precious than gold, more than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Understand that nothing in this world can satisfy the craving that only God can give you or that he can satisfy. Everything is cheap and counterfeit. But the great reward is sweeter than you would ever dare to believe. And it's not necessarily heaven. Because what makes heaven, heaven is the great reward, which is God himself. The reward at the end of the way of the righteous leads to God himself. Because you see, God is the planter of the tree. He dug the stream. He is the stream himself. And that's what salvation is. To be planted by God to be loved by God, to be reconciled to God, to be restored into a holy relationship, a communion with God. That is what salvation is. There's a, read this earlier. I sent it to my buddy Jack. <laughs> but there's a certain passage 
also in the Psalms, in Psalm 84. And Psalm 84 says this. It's about knowing God. It's about being on this way of the righteous. I think it's powerful. And King David says, I'd rather spend one day in the presence of God than a thousand anywhere else. And I'd rather be God's doorkeeper than be a king. The Christian faith isn't necessarily about living a good moral life. It's not about being a better you. It's not a guideline. This Christian walk, this godly way, this religion that we're all here participating in in the corporate assembly is about knowing a person. The way of the godly, the way of the righteous is about knowing a person. And it rather means being known by that person. Which leads me to my third plumb line question. Third question is, what is the way to the way of the godly? This will be short. I mentioned earlier that there are countless worldviews that try to grab your attention. There are political parties and there are philosophies and there are other religions that tries to get a hold of you and tell you what true life is found in. About how to be happy, about how to be satisfied, about how to have this vigor of life. And they all fail because there's only one worldview, there's only one faith, and there's only one lifestyle that will lead you into real abundant life. There's only one path. But where does it start? I've been talking about the way of the ungodly, and then I got to talk about the way of the godly, and I didn't even mention how do you get on the way of the godly. But it's the most important question that we can ask. So let's ask it. You can live a moral, ethical lifestyle on your own. You can avoid certain places and people. You can read your Bible. You can pray three times a day. And you can still never know God. And you can still never have abundant life. Remember that we are chasing something, folks. For the godly, we're supposed to be chasing after the precepts and the people and the purpose of God. And anything else, like I said, is a cheap waste and it is a deception. But having and experiencing and living out abundant life has never started just with the precepts. Not even with the people. Not even with the purpose of God. The way of the godly. Having experience and living out abundant life only ever starts with the person of God. And there's only one way to be on the way of the godly, which begins by being known by that God. Who in particular, who is that God if it's not Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us? Do you see the logos in the Psalms? Do you see Jesus Christ in the Psalms? We're going to read it one more time, and I want you to find him. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sits in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That person is like a tree that is planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf, leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Do you see them? This is what the whole Old Testament's about. It's about looking for Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, in the Psalms, where he is not explicitly mentioned, and that's the thrill of God's word. I'll show you. If I'm back, you get up a slide real quick. Jesus Christ did not walk and counsel the wicked. He counseled the wicked, and he did not stand in the way of the sinners. Rather, he ate with them, loved them, and corrected them. And ultimately, he stood in their place on the cross. And he did not sit in the seat of scoffers, but was spat upon by them. And he was crucified by the scoffers, as if he was one of them. And Jesus Christ lived the perfect, holy, righteous life that you and I could never live. And he walked the perfect way that you and I could have never walked. But what did he receive for walking the perfect path of God? 
not the blessing, but the curse. All for what? So that you who could never live the perfect godly life could receive the blessing. That is the gospel. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that in him we might be totally righteous and we might be totally loved and totally reconciled by God. And because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is not explicitly shown here, but it is indicated, that promise and blessing can be fulfilled in you. And today, you don't have to walk or stand or sit with sin. And said, Jesus Christ, his offer and his offer in the psalm is this, is to walk and is to stand and is to sit with him, to truly live, to have abundant life. See it. Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, which we have spent a whole month studying and living for. Jesus Christ is the planter of the tree. He is the living water that actually causes a man to prosper. He is the person of God revealed to us in the first psalm. And how do I get placed upon the way that he walks so perfectly? The answer is simple. You don't climb onto the way. You don't climb the mountain to meet God. You don't get on the path by your own doing. It's not Christianity. It's not by your sincere efforts to live morally. Because to be honest, you're not very good at that anyways. So how do I get the abundant life Jesus Christ promises? The answer is simple, it's profound, and it's this. Before you can truly live, you must truly die. That's what Jesus Christ says in Matthew 10, in verse 30. He says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you will give up your life for me, if you will give up the life, if you will give up your own trying, if you will give up your own path, he says, I will place you on the path, the real path, the real way that leads, leads to satisfaction and contentment. That's the way to the way of the godly, and it all leads home. In John 14, 6, go ahead and end with it, because you're probably thinking about this first, so I'll go ahead and say it. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, and that I am the truth, and that I am the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to God on the path of the godly, on the way of the godly, unless he walks hand in hand with Jesus Christ, who gives you his Holy Spirit to help you do it. So I ask, and I'll leave with this, are you in the way? Do you know the way personally? Do you have the abundant life? You can look in this book for it. It'll tell you how to get it. And it'll instruct you once you're on that path to live the abundant life. I promise you that. Can you look forward? And in 10 or in 20, for some of us, 50 years from now, can you be able to say that I truly lived and then in eternity hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's your crown to the path that you have walked. That is the question I will leave you with. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for the Torah. Thank you for the word of God that you have revealed to us. Thank you for the entire spoken revelation of God, which is not here to just give us a rule or regulation or a perfect instruction about how to live or how to worship God. It's so much more. It's supposed to be our lives itself, the purpose, the precepts, the people and the persons, particularly the person of God, is our life, and he is abundant life. God, let us never forget it. Let us never chase a career or money or education or any other kind of sin, any sexual immorality or any love of money, or anything else, not even a relationship, not even the people we love, we do not put them above you, Lord, because we will 
not to have abundant life if we do such a thing, God. We thank you for the holy word of God which has been preserved for us. People who have died to keep this book and to give it to us, Lord. And for the Holy Spirit that works in our lives to give us the abundant life. And the Holy Spirit that has written this book to also assist us in the way of the righteous and the way of the godly, Lord. Walk with us this week into the new year. Help us to live abundantly as changed, transformed people who will go and conquer the world and who will reconcile the world as a tree of life, part of the bigger tree of life. And I pray this all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is before ever praised and honored. Amen.